welcome to the Time Shifters podcast. I'm your host, Christopher. This podcast takes a fun look at the films of long past, recent past, and the almost present, as well as the events and news surrounding them. I would love to hear from you, and there are several ways to get in touch with the show. Look for the Time Shifters podcast group on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Time Shifters Pod, or you can send us a typed or recorded message to timeshifterspodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and please check us and our fellow podcasters out over on podchaser.com. Please rate and review the show at any of these outlets. All these links can be found on timeshifterspodcast.com. Now let's head to the Timeshifter studio and start the show. Everyone, welcome back to Time Shifters. This is Christopher, and I'm, of course, here with Tom. Hello, Tom. Howdy, sir. How are you? Doing okay. I'm a bit tired, <laughs> but uh, but okay. My my sleep schedules have been um, disturbed over the last <laughs> few days. I have an aging dog who is picking up some peculiar habits, and uh, we're just... Uh, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> Member of the family, I totally understand. It's not like you can throw him out just because he wakes you up at 3 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Unfortunately not. No, he's been too faithful of a friend for me to turn my back on him now. So that's kind of been me. I know you have been uh, crazy busy still with work. Yeah. Yep. Working at a university it's, uh, as you're about to start a semester, this gets to be the busiest time and i actually threw in a trip out back home in the middle of all that i was amazed you were able to do that and i we, it was great you and i were had a chance to actually get together for a few hours and it was nice seeing you but uh, i remember you saying though that you you were on quote-unquote vacation <laughs> but also on call <laughs> so you were fielding uh texts and calls the entire weekend that you were here yeah text calls emails whatever whatever needed to it's one of those things, could I have uh, sat it aside? Sure. That would have just made the rest of this week even worse. <laughs> I was going to say, would you have regretted that decision? Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, I actually had to have that conversation with my boss about the whole notion. They're like, did you have a nice relaxing trip? I'm like, no. No. <laughs> They're like, well, why not? And I'm like, because this stuff still has to get done. <laughs> you wouldn't leave me alone. Well, they all took breaks, too, for one reason mm. or another. Uh, one not-so-good reason, the other one, uh, I don't know. Well, despite all this, I know... Oh, before we get into anything that we've been watching, this news came up, and I wanted to make sure to mention this, because we were talking about it on the last episode, talking about the comic Cincinnati Comic Expo. And we were, I think we even talked that we were hoping they would make some announcement or make it known what they were going to do concerning you know, the, the COVID stuff mm -hmm. and, and everything. And lo and behold, no more than a few days later, they did. They have announced that masks will be required on all convention spaces. So I am very excited for that. They are doing masks. I think they're going to be doing... Um, setting up all their their guests with uh, probably some 
plexiglass shielding a little bit. Okay. And uh, everybody has all, all the the guests will be supplied. Will be using their own pens. You're not you can't bring in your own pen. They're kind of trying to keep the uh, contact down to a minimum, except when absolutely necessary. And then of course they're leaving it up to the guests themselves. I'm as far as they if they want to shake hands or you know get in close for a selfie or something like that. Sure. But um, just glad that they finally made the uh, made the announcement and have taken some steps to try to protect people and I was really happy that when they posted it I was reading on the Facebook post and everything that 98% of the people that commented were complimenting them for making this decision and for looking out for everybody so that was that was heartwarming it wasn't just a you know complete scroll of one tirade after another no uh, that that is a good thing and uh, well yeah I, I, I think you even brought it up in, in one of the things. How can you, how can you read these comic books and and the heroes within, and be interested in the common good from that perspective, and then shout down that you won't wear a mask? <laughs> like right. Yeah, and there were unfortunately there were a few people that were commenting along those lines that they were talking about. Well, I'm going to skip this one until I don't have to wear a mask. This is like, you just you you don't get it, do you? <laughs> what comics do you read? <laughs> hey. Why are you going in the first place? Hey, good, fifty seventy percent of the heroes all wear masks already. Well, just join the club. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Heroes wear masks. That's what I said. Yeah, so that was a uh, very exciting, very cool. So looking forward. To, I mean, I'm still nervous about going because you know con crud is a thing even in the best of times. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but see, when you're in your mask and if you uh, use your hand sanitizer, wash your hands, and all that, th- this is what I, as a guy that has had a job that in- requires me to be in the world anyway. Even mm-hmm. through the worst of this, I went through all last year without ever getting a cold or anything. So, right, I mean, right. yes, you can still go do these interactions and come back unscathed as long as you yep, use the no. right precautions. Nope, absolutely. So, yes, I, I will be masks. I will uh, make sure my hand sanitizer is full and in a, in a pocket yep. <laughs> or in my in a duffel bag or something handy that I can get at there. Also, they've announced that uh, the Cincinnati Convention Center, which is where it's being held, will have plenty of station hand sanitizing stations throughout the uh, convention space. So, yeah, no excuses. A little bit of uh, sad news that happened, um, well, just a few days before we were recording. Uh, Ed Asner passed away. Emmy Award-winning... Uh, actor for just decades. People know him best depending on when you grew up. You know, you knew him either from Mary Tyler Moore or you knew him from, uh, or you and I probably knew him really well for his voice work. Mm -hmm. He did a lot of uh, voice acting for a lot of animated features and uh, particularly Gargoyles, which has come up on this show on numerous occasions. Yeah, and uh, I almost forget that he played the lead in up the pixar yeah of course yeah yeah which you know what i still haven't seen that you really haven't i really have not seen that and a little bit has to do with the fact that people have told me about how that starts and it's like 
I don't want to ugly cry in the first 10 minutes of a movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Because I will. No, because that is one of the ones. It, it, it seems like such a, a ridiculous premise, but Pixar really, they did what they do best. And, and Ed Asner was amazing in that. He was just a, a brilliant actor and that carried over to his voice acting. You didn't have to see the man to actually <laughs> enjoy his work. He was awesome. Oh, as I scroll through stuff, I even oh, almost forgot that he played Santa in Elf. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was such an awesome Santa, too, because he, he, he was that kind of that gnarled, matter-of-fact Santa. <laughs> right. So Ed Asner, right? Yes, Ed Asner, yes. He was, he was Lou Grant. <laughs> he was Lou Grant as Santa. Lou Grant as Santa. Yeah, that's pretty That's pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah, that was sad news. But it, w- it was also one of those news where I was like, ah, I actually didn't realize that he was still with us. I thought he passed away a few years ago. Because oh. I don't think he'd done all that much work. Probably Pixar's Up was probably the last big thing that I know of that he did. I could be very mistaken on that. Yeah, no. Actually, the funny thing is he's got some stuff still in post-production. Oh, excellent. Yeah, so he worked right on up through. Again, as I'm scrolling through, there's one I really didn't know that was him. Um, In the Superman the Animated Series, he voiced Granny Goodness. Oh, my goodness. I had totally missed that, and now that uh, now that I actually read that, I like I totally I totally hear it. <laughs> right. So that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. No, he he was amazing. Uh, yeah, just amazing. He was fantastic, and yeah, he's another one where it's very sad that he has left us, but he has left us with so much to enjoy and remember him by. Yeah, like I'm running out of scrolling here <laughs> just taking a look at back through his history you know, like been working since 1957 and straight through till till the yeah like i said there's stuff in post-production that won't come out till next year that's fantastic yeah oh awesome so let's talk about happier things uh we have been Still managing to squeeze in some viewing of some television and movies. I know you've still been watching a lot of the older Top Gear that's available on Prime. Yes. I've been doing a lot of the same thing. I've gone back. I even went back there. I don't know why. It came up as a news story that apparently, um, I don't know, James May went and uh, something about his dune buggy from one of the Grand Tour episodes. Yeah. Uh, he just recently, I guess, refinished it or, or, you know, refurbished it or something like that. And it was in some news story, and it was a big deal, and I kept seeing it pop up on social media. I'm like, mm. it's like, I, I don't even remember that episode. Uh, I had to go, I went back and looked, and I think it was the uh, second season of Grand Tour yeah. where they drove uh, dune buggies uh, through Africa. Yeah. And uh, so I went and watched that and took a break from Top Gear to watch a Grand Tour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, like, I've been marveling because uh, I didn't catch a lot of those earlier seasons uh, um, due to I, I didn't even know it was a thing there for a while till I came up on BBC America. And uh, I'd only catch them here and there. So I was never watching entire series all the way through. Not until... Not until I fully locked in on this is a lot of fun. Um, Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, 
my original uh, impression of Top Gear was like the actual old original car show where it would be some mind-numbing presenter just telling you the facts about a car. (laughs) <laughs> and then right, just on reviewing the a car. Oh, right. No, no flair, no style. But uh, yeah, like seeing this Stig um, pre pre white suit. <laughs> yeah. Like I didn't even know he wore a black suit at one point. So, <laughs> yep. um, but no, yeah, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, I find myself myself missing kind of the earlier style too, where they actually talked. They did all the fun cars, but they also did more of the everyman car, the one you you and your family or you as a, a, a 20-something who likes a good hot hatch and all that. Uh, right. Yeah, I, I love it when they do those, and it was kind of a shame as they got bigger that they kind of got away from that. They did. Well, even in the early ones, it seemed like they were forcing themselves almost to review some of the more common cars. Right. <laughs> you know, the, that was just getting in the way of the Lambos and the Ferraris. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was actually the funny thing. I mean, they weren't even, and they were like in second, maybe third season, and they were already getting the letters about, why don't you talk about stuff that we can actually drive? <laughs> right. And that's where I think it was probably about third or fourth season where they just pointed at some car they had in the showroom that was, you know, some Ford or something like that. Great car. Now, we p- we each picked three Lamborghinis, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, uh, right now, especially with as busy as things have been, it's just a nice... It, it, it's a comfortable slipper to put on at the end of the day because you can even just fall asleep to their their... Their English voices as they lull, <laughs> lull you. I, I have fallen asleep to, you know, the star in a reasonably priced car will start or something like that. I'll doze off and wake up and it's another star. Wait, where'd the happen to the other guy? <laughs> <laughs> well, and you, actually, that's the funny thing. That's the when I usually fall asleep because they'll be talking to some obscure British like radio guy that I've never ever heard of. Which I'll never fault them that they're having that interview, but I'm not into it. So just the the peaceful, soothing sound of Jeremy Clarkson's voice will lull <laughs> me to sleep. Now I did watch a film recently. It it come it came up at just the right time. I didn't realize I was in the mood for a martial arts film yeah. until th- this showed up on Amazon Prime. Is just a film I might like or something, or maybe it had had just been added to Prime or something. I don't know why exactly it popped up in my feed, but I watched a film called Chocolate from 2008. Okay. This is a, it's a Thai film. It is about a a girl, they they don't say autistic, but all the descriptions and the way she's portrayed, she's on this, definitely on the autism spectrum. Okay. The, but not the actress, the uh, the character in the sure, film, sure. and she happens to move in. Her and her her mom happen to move in next door to a Thai boxing school, and so she watches these guys doing their exercises and their lessons, and starts picking up their moves, and then she starts watching television and catching Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan movies, and starts picking up their moves, and 
teaches herself martial arts that way. So kind of the idiot savant? Exactly, exactly. And then all while that's going on, uh, you know, her mom and her estranged father were like uh, members of like rival Yakuza uh, gangs or something like that. that and then uh, her and a, her adoptive brother decide to use her new skills to try to get money from people that they've discover owe her mom money and now she, you know because mom's ailing from cancer and they need money for her treatments and so they start going and trying to collect money and of course her martial arts skill come in handy and the Akazu start getting involved again I, the plot is crazy out there and i'm not even going to pretend to really understand what the hell was going on A little convoluted some of the acting some of the acting is terrible. You know, some is, some are really good, some are really bad. It's it's one of those movies where the really good actors only highlight how bad the rest of the oh. cast is. <laughs> That's always awesome. But the star of this film is this young girl. She was only she plays I think a character that's supposed to be 14 to 16 or something like that, but she was in her mid 20s, but she looks pretty young. Uh she is an amazing martial artist. Just incredible to watch. And why I bring this up, too, is this is one of these movies that was done in Thailand. This is one of those movies you literally could not make this anywhere else in the world. This is no green screen, no CGI, no wire work. These are real people doing real martial arts, taking real dives off of, like, three-story buildings... Uh, and slamming from awning to awning. I mean, Jackie Chan-like stuff. Yes. Old school, old school martial arts action scenes. And complete with like the little outtakes during the credits showing people actually getting kicked <laughs> and actually taking bad falls and ending up in the hospital and, you know, and cuts and bruises. So just like the end of any Jackie Chan movie. <laughs> exactly. I really enjoyed the watch, though. It was so much fun, just because of all the above. <laughs> and, and, and you know what? It's nice to hear that there are still a few of the of in that style that that uh, that that gritty do it for real. Uh, we're gonna ta- do this in as many takes as we can before somebody actually gets seriously killed? injured or killed. <laughs> Just, uh, yeah, the old Jackie Chan style of making a film. It might not be great, but it's going to be a fun watch. Yeah, it reminded me of like Jackie Chan's old Hong Kong films. Yeah. Um, which I know you and I, when Jackie Chan first kind of hit the States and big, you know, his films were everywhere and you could find them, you could rent them from the blockbuster there on cable and everything. And it, it didn't matter how small or large a role, if he was in the film, you could find it. And and I know you and I used to watch a lot of those films when we were younger down in down in your basement. We'd find them on cable or dig them up at the at the video store or whatever and rumble in whatever or they probably had four dozen names depending on which country they were <laughs> released in. Uh, so yes, it, it just it re- reminded me so much of those, and then this young actress was just amazing. Especially there's moments where she's like mimicking Bruce Lee in her fight moves, yeah. complete with like the uh, the 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 crazy faces and the and the <laughs> screams and the howls and everything. Oh, it was just so much fun. 
I'm going to have to dig that one up. I would strongly recommend it. And apparently her next, her second film, um, Raging Phoenix, is available on Prime 2. And that's that's on the watch list. I'm going to have to dig that one up and watch that one as well. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've just, I always got a kick out of those. I actually, <laughs> the, a couple of films that I went ahead and went back and watched, speaking of Jackie Chan, were um, the Cannonball Run movies. Yeah, the, the, that was supposed to be his big entry into the U.S. It didn't really work. No. <laughs> but that was, I didn't even realize that's who it was until much later. Oh, really? I knew there was, yeah, I knew there was the, the, the Asian guy that did, you know, karate or did kung fu, you know, in the, in the Cannonball Run movies. I didn't realize it was Jackie Chan. And, and, and actually, that's when you can get into that whole the difference kind of thing. Um, yeah, because he, he did all of his stuff out of China, Hong Kong, um, and then in America, they made him Japanese. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> that's what we know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and it fit with the car theme. <laughs> right, right. So, But yeah, no, it's actually kind of funny cause, uh, because I've been on that Top Gear <laughs> stint fitting in the cannonball run was fun too so now that you mentioned it i just realized i I have not watched cannonball run in decades we may have to fit those in at some point i i maybe we should i'm pretty sure they don't really hold up well as far as standing the test of time but i still think they would probably be fun i, I we could go into an entire rabbit hole just on some of the stuff that I caught on a rewatch that I wouldn't have caught back when I watched it the first time because I'm a teenager then. Uh, I'm in it for the the pretty girls and the fast cars. So oh, we could probably do a whole uh, series of just race films. We could watch the original Gumball, yeah, Gumball. Uh, Gumball Rally, uh, Gumball Rally. We could watch the original, which was what inspired Cannonball Run, and there was actually three cannonball run films there was cannonball run one cannonball run two and then there was one called speed zone which was a it was a cannonball run but didn't have the name cannonball run i I was wondering that because i knew of that film i don't know that i've actually seen it i watched it at some point um after i found out that it was really a sort of unofficial third cannonball run. No, it's actually, and again, nice little tie-in to all that, but uh, um, the gumball rally, of course, is a real thing. Um, it mm. is actually a, it's a, at, just like in Cannonball and the gumball rally movie, it's not a real race, but it's a race because they're not allowed to call it a race because of what they do. Right. Um, but no, um, Jody West, and I'm sure I'm getting that wrong. Uh, one of the uh, models that did the uh, the uh, star in a reasonably priced car, um, she was actually the first to, to beat uh, the top leaders at the time. Um, she's actually participated in the gumball. Oh, interesting. That's cool. Yes. Yeah, so I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. That's a real thing. I didn't know that's, it was a real. I, I I didn't know or I had forgotten that it was a real thing. Now, now of course, uh, because this was like second season uh, Top Gear, we are talking that that was probably about that's almost four, twenty years yeah, ago. I think that's like 2004. <laughs> 
four or something yeah, like that. Yeah, so like yeah, about eighteen years ago, something right. like that. So, so it, if gumball is still a thing, it might not now. <laughs> But it was then, and that's actually what inspired me to watch the Cannonball Run movies. Yeah, we'll definitely have to figure out a way to fit those in. That might be a while. We've got plans for the rest of the year, and we've even talked about plans for next year. So maybe 2023. (laughs) It's good to think ahead. That's right. We'll kick off uh, 2023 with a series of rally movies. Yeah, I like it. I like that idea. Put it on the put it on the schedule. I'll put it on the list. So yeah, a- anything else you want to talk about? That was pretty much. Uh, those were my highlights. Ah, those were mine as well. It, like it's, like you pointed out, it's a real busy time right now, and I didn't know I had that much in me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well let's go ahead and take a break. We'll listen to a promo for another podcast. When we return, we're going to look at Tom's first mystery science theater experience when we discuss 1962-ish The Ring of Terror. Jeff Sandwich. You might not know me, barely anyone does, except my mother and her cocker spaniel, Alan. But I have listened to every single movie podcast that has ever been made. I don't get out much, and sometimes I have to make toilet in a bottle. What did he just say, Marjorie? However, having completed this exhaustive research, it is my assertion that the After Movie Diner podcast, with its heady mix of comedy, movie banter, fandom, passion, beards, music, and voluminous thighs, is in fact the greatest movie podcast available anywhere, even Holland. Find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and AfterMovieDiner.com. Now, where's that bottle? Alone in a graveyard at midnight. This is Lewis Moffat, a freshman at State College of Medicine. On his way to fulfill a fraternity hazing assignment. A victim of fear. I'm studying medicine not because Dad was a doctor, but because, well, I feel I have the qualifications that'll make a good doctor. For instance, I'm not afraid of any of it. I'm not afraid of the blood or the corpses or or the operations. Mr. John Doe left this world with one possession on him. A gold ring. Here, displaying false courage to the amazement of his fellow students. Hey, why all the curiosity? Oh, I just wondered if Lou's assignment was as weird as mine. Weird? Yeah, I guess that is the word for it. Weird. We dare you to see the picture that Hollywood was afraid to exhibit. And the slithering hand came forth. Could life have endured therein? Actually, I think it's just Ring of Terror, isn't it? It's not the Ring of Terror. No, it's just Ring of Terror. Right. 
Uh, from what I've read, the way I said it was 62-ish, you'll find it on IMDb is 1961. But from what I read, if you believe the IMDb trivia, it was actually filmed in 55 and not released until 62. So it's anything between 55 and 62. <laughs> And that would explain the uh, the the death of the main character. Um, his headstone read 1955. Oh, good point. I didn't think about that. That does make sense. Well, The Ring of Terror, this film was directed by Clark Palo uh, from a screenplay by Louis Simeon and Gerald Zinnemann. And this is Simeon and Zinnemann's only film credit and the only full directing film credit for Palo as well. He did direct several episodes of Sky King in 1958 and 59, which was a popular television series at the time, and was assistant director or producer on many productions well into the early 80s, including assistant director and production manager for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. My, how his, his star rose after Ring of Terror. This film was widely panned by critics of the time, and universally so for the use of actors that were all in their 30s and 40s at the time of filming, portraying 20-something college students. The film was introduced by a graveyard keeper as he strolls through the cemetery late at night looking for his cat Puma. He stumbles upon the grave marker of an individual that he remembers, and he then begins to tell the story, which follows the exploits of a group of medical students as they try to balance school, romance, and their pledging to a popular fraternity. The main character of the film is Louis Moffat, a man with apparent nerves of steel. But as we come to find out, much of that is forced bravado stemming from a childhood trauma. This combination proves to be his undoing as the fraternity leaders come up with a pledge test designed to finally rattle the apparently unshakable Louis B. Moffat. This film was the sixth subject of Mystery Science Theater's 3000 second season, which aired November 1990, along with a chapter of the 1939 serial The Phantom Creeps. And apparently it was the last time The Phantom Creeps was shown on Mystery Science Theater. I don't think it was the last chapter of The Phantom Creeps, but it was the last one they looked at. So, yes, so this was your first MST. It, it was indeed. Um, as uh, I think I've explained several times, uh, I had come across a, a Comedy Central but saw this black and white film, and the two didn't jive for me at the time. And I'm trying to see what the heck is going on and then all of a sudden I'm at, at toward the end of the film I didn't realize at the time and all of a sudden I just hear what turned out to be Tom Servo singing the hills are alive oh maybe not <laughs> and there is an there is a character on screen walking through a graveyard and I'm right. like I just like what 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 just happened <laughs> so, so I sat down and watched the rest of the episode. I'm like, this is awesome. Uh, I even went back uh, because uh, they tended to to uh, um, whatever you were watching was probably going to air again a few hours later anyway. Right. So I figured it out and recorded the whole thing so that I could watch the whole episode. And 
was in love ever since. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, sure, because they would probably do uh, East Coast, West Coast uh, mm-hmm. programming. So I'm guessing, because since my first MST was, what, fifth season? I think we... Uh, this Cave Dwellers. Cave Dwellers, wasn't that like fifth, fourth or fifth season? I'm, like I'm, I'm already blanking. catching a rerun at that point. Yeah, so I'm thinking you must have caught this as a, as a rerun or something. And then uh, and started watching it, and uh, and then of course we caught up with all the other reruns and all the other er- earlier uh, episodes. Well, as any uh, fan of Mystery Science Theater knows, um, Comedy Central lived off that show. Oh for, yes, for a very long time. For a very long time, yes. No, they they ran it nonstop. I mean, there is a reason they came up with the Turkey Day special. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you you know your shows, or you know you've got something when the network decides to make an entire day and a, and a special all revolved around your program. Uh, and and uh, what I remember from, I believe it was an interview with Trace, that that he thought it was interesting that they wanted to put together a marathon day since they were already taking up like. 18 hours of the week already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have to wonder, did Comedy Central like back off on the reruns like the week prior just to make people <laughs> not think it was just an, another ordinary rerun? Well, yeah, you know, you got to pull it back so people need their fix on, on Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> right. So Ring of Terror. <laughs> right. I'm trying to think where to really begin talking about this one. I'm pretty sure this was the first time either one of us had watched this thing unrift. Oh, yeah, no. I, I mean, I can't even conceive where we would have caught it without forcing the issue. Yeah, this is not something that's just going to pop up on TCM or uh, or any other network at any time. You You have to go looking for it. Well, and a lot of that has to do with uh, the, the actual runtime of the film. Yeah, I, it is mercifully short. <laughs> yeah, yes, I think both of us enjoyed its brevity. Yes, hour and change. I mean, uh, yeah, no. Uh, depending on where you watched it, uh, I saw as long as an hour four and a couple of seconds to an hour three and a couple of seconds. Right. Yes. I went for the hour three. (laughs) Wise move. (laughs) Yeah, this film, and they made a point of it while talking about it on the MST, and you you can't hide it. Yeah, everyone in this movie is middle-aged. They're all in their 30s or 40s. Uh, I thought it was... I have to think that the reason being is for some reason that he decided, okay, this is going to be your star. He's going to play a college student. And they said, well, he's 35 years old. People are going to notice. I'm like, no, no, no. We'll cast everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, seeing as how they're all supposed to be college students, it was starting to be difficult to discern between them and the faculty. Uh, Yeah, so the entire student body were in their 40s or 50s with complete with receding hairlines and uh it was awful i this i really wish this was a film that 
was for some reason more popular so there'd be more information as to why the hell people made the decisions they did to make this movie. Yeah, yeah. You kind of want that sit down, that conversation with the uh, the writers, the directors, the the casting uh, to just better understand what, what, what was the thought process here? It's not surprised that this was the only writing credits for these for the writers of this film because this is just a a weird meandering ring of terror that's a name that they put on it to put people in the seats cuz really bad moniker for this story <laughs> but i don't I, I don't know what else you could call it that would have made it at all interesting because i tell you what this film is not interesting <laughs> No, and actually, what I became mystified, at an hour and three minutes, if you take out anything that didn't have dialogue in it, just reduce it to the conversations had, you could probably get this in in a tight 20 minutes. (laughs) Well, that's what's funny. I think there was plenty of conversations in this film, but none of them added up to much of anything. I think you could take the important conversations and and wrap it up in a good 20 minutes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, as uh, you're watching this, um, it, it wanted to be a horror movie, but it didn't know how to scare you. No, no exactly. <laughs> it was trying to walk this line of being sort of like a, a thriller, but... Yeah. It was throwing in these weird comedy moments, and the comedy wasn't funny. The The thriller elements weren't suspenseful at all. Um, it starts almost a jokingly, like a kid's movie uh, sort of thing in the beginning, like a, like a, uh, a kid's matinee B movie in the beginning with the uh, graveyard keeper talking, you know, breaking the fourth wall and talking to the audience, and, oh... Yes, I remember him. What would you do? And that sort of stuff. I mean, it is just textbook. Uh, like, um, oh, what's uh, some of the, um, not Corman, but some of the older uh, directors, the uh, William blanking on his name. <laughs> Sorry. Terrible. That's, that's just what happens when, he, when, he, when you get up at three in the morning. Um, it, it, it do indeed. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's just the, the classic stuff with like, you know, uh, House on Haunted Hill, uh, that, that, okay. that, that genre, that, that type of film. What this felt like to me a little bit, too, is I've heard of Hitchcock. Mm. I don't know how to do what he does, but let me give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Like, we're going to... It, it, it felt like someone really, 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 really thought they had a good idea and had no idea how to execute on it. Yeah, very much. Or maybe they caught some Twilight Zones and thought, hey, that, that's kind of neat how he kind of introduces the story. I want to get into... Because uh, um, this, this thing's just a train wreck. Because uh, it's just... It, it doesn't have anything. Uh, it's following these uncharismatic characters through a very bland 
sequence. I mean, they're they're trying to make a bigger deal out of the fact that these students are, are going to go see an autopsy, which that's like your big scene in, in the whole thing. I mean, and that's one of those scenes that just kind of drones on forever. And Mystery Science Theater did an amazing job with picking up on just how tedious the the the, the scene was. But I mean. That was supposed to be your where you feel something. Oh, they're seeing somebody get cut open for the first time. These are future doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the kind of the gag is half of them can't take take it. But the little side thing in Mystery Science Theater picked up on this too um, is the uh, the heavier couple that, mm. that, that is in the film. Yeah, I wanted to talk about this. Yes. Uh, first off, uh, the, the, the fat shaming w- was all over the place in there. But interestingly, and hard to believe in an hour-long film, Mystery Science Theater still found room to cut. Yes. Um, th- there, was, there was significant chunks gone, and one of them in particular was the beauty pageant. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't make it into the Mystery Science Theater. It did briefly. Briefly. Yeah. But not the full... Not the full scene. Because part of what was missing, which is actually the one redeeming moment in, in this entire film, yep. is the the heavier guy... Um, I tiny. Forgot. Tiny, tiny, which of course isn't, again, fat shaming in and of itself. Um, but... Tiny is one of the judges in the beauty pageant. And, of course, the beauty pageant is just all the women that you've ever been introduced to in right. the film at all. Yes. So, so his girlfriend, the heavier girl, is in there, too. And then it's two of the uh, uh, older faculty that are that are judging this. And, of course, they're doing the swimsuit uh, thing. And... As they're going to make the decision based off of what we don't really know other than this big, this kind of catwalk kind of thing they just did. I imagine we ought to make a decision. My vote goes for Miss um, Lund. Miss Alice Lund. I'll go along with that too. I vote for Miss Milford. Miss Ragdoll Milford. Who? Uh, he here. Uh, he means the uh, 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 the large one. He's kidding. He's gotta be. You are kidding, aren't you, young man? No, sir. To me, she's lovely. Well, I had hoped we could make a unanimous decision, but that's your choice. Yes, sir. And you know, I think you both ought to vote for her too. Oh, you do. Why? Well. So I've been told Miss Milford has heart and spirit and soul and generosity and kindness, too. We are selecting the winner of a beauty contest, not a den mother. Well, if you're only interested in superficial values, surface qualities... Oh, well, even speaking of surface qualities, just look at the... That'll do. I think we've reached a majority decision. Uh, you'll make the announcement, Professor Rayburn. He's making a, a bid to pick Ragdoll, the heavier girl, in who's up there with the rest of the girls. And he is actually listing out, oh, she's kind-hearted. 
She's sweet. He's laying out all of the good personality traits and making a play. That's just as important as how someone looks, or more important. Mm -hmm. He's making that case, and he kind of almost for a second even gets them a little bit. And they're like, nah, we're going to go with the uh, the blonde. In a movie where they were clearly putting down those two most of the time, um, I liked that kind of moment there. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it, if you do watch the film, um, those two in the movie are the only ones ever having a good time. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> They're the ones that seem genuinely happy. Yeah. Even though everyone else seems like they're just eh. even though their their happiness is played for laughs by everybody else. As you as you so eloquently put, it's fat shaming from beginning to end mm-hmm. in this film, except for that one brief moment. Tiny, you're a hero. You know, right. that's fantastic. I, you know, Tiny's awesome. Tiny continues to be the hero because there's a one other scene where he has redeeming quality. They are doing the the ple- the pledge missions. The, right. the, the this is their version of hazing um, at the time. Um, but they have these missions for their pledges to go on, and. Casey Kasem, or whoever, because the guy... <laughs> he reminded us, thank you. It's exactly yes. who he reminded me of. Yeah, the leader of the, the this particular fraternity came off very much like Casey Kasem. Looked just like him, too. Um, and uh, he's handing out the missions, and he give, he's giving um, Tiny his mission, where for the next week he can only eat... Uh, Bread and uh, bread and water for uh, three meals a day, and that's it. And Tiny actually tells him, "Keep your damn pledge. I don't want to be a part of this. I like who I am. Mm-hmm. I'm not. Ge- I'm not changing for anybody." And uh, and then the guy lets it says, "I'm just kidding. I'll let you let you in." And I I gotta. I'm like, again, in the middle of this movie that is clearly putting this guy down, he's the one that rises above. It was right. awesome. And I also noticed, and I wanted to point out, that the Mystery Science Theater also points out about the fat shaming. Mm-hmm. And they bring up the fact that these guys are the, you know, the butt of the joke, of everybody's jokes, and it's always played for humor. But in doing so, they repeatedly call them the fatties. <laughs> yeah, they, they they weren't redeeming themselves a whole lot while they no, were doing that. No, no. It, it, it's like you, you they weren't quite woke. <laughs> they they were still half asleep. <laughs> well, and, and folks, for those of you who will never uh, um, see this movie and don't really go out of your way to No, it. no. Um, but these two, Tiny and Ragdoll, by today's standards, are considered average build. Yeah, yeah, yeah they are far from, like, you know, horribly obese or anything like that. Yeah, like, like even Ragdoll, when she got up there in her swimsuit, um, yeah, she's a fuller-figured girl, but she's not necessarily that out, outrageously large. So, yeah, yeah, I definitely wanted to talk about that. I definitely wanted to talk about the MST who almost, you know, called him out for it. <laughs> but um, 
didn't it quite fell back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They kind of took uh, two steps forward and then took three back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were close, not quite. But then again, they cut out the uh, they cut out the scenes where you could actually enjoy the fact that the those that were being picked on were actually just fine with themselves. The rest of you can all screw off. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I think that was the probably the largest chunk that was excised for the MST. The only other section that I was positive they trimmed was just a few seconds where it actually explained how the rattlesnake got into the girl's car. I don't remember seeing it on the MST that uh, he opens the door to pick the uh, the flowers off the tree and leaves the door open, and that's what the snake uses to get into the car. They well, show I the seem snake. I recall the snake going into the car, but oh, maybe I missed it. it, it it's easy enough to miss. Um, yeah, I think they also trimmed off a bit of the uh, the mission where the uh, again they're making fun of the guy in glasses because he's got glasses, mm-hmm. um, and they make him dress as Cupid and run around in the woods. I don't think they did all of that. Maybe not. Oh, you know what? I think they actually trimmed the autopsy. I think the autopsy, despite the fact that it was incredibly long, even in the MST version, was even longer in the uncut version. I do believe there was a few extra minutes of autopsy. Maybe even while uh, running on the treadmill and watching this film, maybe I still dozed off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a a long, long, long scene. (laughs) That's got to be at least five, six minutes. And it really goes to show that the filmmakers... If you want to make your scene seem tedious, don't focus on it with using the clock <laughs> and the droning music. <laughs> doom, you're only doom. you're only hitting it home. <laughs> you're only making you're only making it tedious for the audience as well. You know, I think they could have also gotten in just under an hour. Uh, if they drop about um, four or five minutes of the uh, caretaker going, Puma, Puma. Yes, but it does give us, you know, one of the longest running uh, riffs. I mean, that the Puma thing carries through MST for years. Yes, it does. Well, it's kind of, kind of hard to miss because seriously, that opening sequence where he's looking for that damn cat. Right. It just it just took way too long. I'm like we don't even we don't even care. No. Come on, <laughs> just get to the story. Was amused by this film's portrayal of medical students and the fact that every one of them, except for Lewis Moffat, was dreading this autopsy. It's like you're all medical students. You're gonna be <laughs> doctors, and you guys are like queasy about being around a dead body. Well, and the fact that they're picking on Lewis Moffat for being okay with it. <laughs> Flaws in the plot. It just... Lewis goes to the one professor. He's like, oh, could you ask me to... Could you? Could I you know, assist you in your autopsy? And, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. The uh, assistance is pushing the cart or the table in with the body and then pushing the 
the table out with the body. That was that's what he did to assist, and that's what everyone was like. Oh, I can't believe he did that. I can't believe he's doing that. I can't believe he's going to do that. Wow, he was like nerves of steel. I can't believe you you handled yourself so well. And then the fact that the character Lewis actually even says, "What? Just pushing a table with a body?" Right. Or, or, or what, just pushing a table? And the guy's like, oh, with a dead body on it. Like, again, you're uh, supposed covered. to be... Yeah, <laughs> you're supposed to be medical students. Uh, the fact is it dead bothers you? I mean, if it was a living body, that's okay? You can cut open a living body and you're going to be cool? <laughs> yeah, there's something to be said for the fact that you aren't going to do the killing. <laughs> yeah. Frankly, I think I'd have an easier time looking inside a dead body... When nothing's moving <laughs> versus looking inside a live body when there's things pumping and pulsating and flowing. <laughs> they tend not to squirt at you that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I understand for most medical students. Yeah, it's when you have the live uh, person and you actually get hit with arterial spray at some point. Right. That's usually when they freak out. <laughs> And rightfully so. That's that moment to panic. But the, <laughs> yeah, the dead true. guy on the gurney, his yeah. troubles are over. That's right. <laughs> None of it really truly holds up. Yeah, the ring of terror, for anyone that's wondering, doesn't come into play until really the final like three minutes of the film. Uh, we find right. out that this John Doe that they do the autopsy on had a gold ring, which they leave on the body. And the... Uh, fraternity boys decide that Lewis Moffat's task is to actually go to the uh, mausoleum and retrieve the gold ring from this John Doe. I don't know why they think that that is going to be this is the guy that supposedly has shown nothing as, as I said nerves of steel through the entire film and as far as in their eyes mm-hmm. why would this suddenly be oh we'll get him why for all you know, this guy could like do this with no issues whatsoever. We know he's got some sort of little trauma and he's afraid of the dark because of some weird-ass thing that happened to him when he was a child, but they don't know that. Well, and what's, well they don't know that, and you're absolutely right, but even the movie doesn't know why this should scare the hell out of him because they... They talk about his childhood trauma, which has to do with uh, um, his grandfather died. Um, I guess at the time it was customary that the coffin might be in your own home. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you would have your visitations and stuff in the home. Yeah. Right. So, so the coffin is downstairs from from his bedroom, and so his grandfather is interred in their house at the moment. And he doesn't want his mom to turn off the lights because he's he's afraid at the moment. She basically forces him not to be a ninny um, and turns out the lights and he spends the, the rest of the night afraid that Grandpa's going to come upstairs. Oh, oh, because Mom of the Year actually yes. tells him if he doesn't quit crying, Grandpa's going to get up out of that coffin and come tan his hide. Right, right. <laughs> so so this is the thing that's got him scared. And I get that from a child's perspective. I get that that that, that must have been a very scary night for him. Hell yes. And also, yes. that's that's the night I learned my mom didn't love me. 
which is the scarier part. Um, <laughs> but because that's the scenario, and he's already gone through the autopsy of John Doe so swimmingly, what does retrieving the ring have to do with pulling back that particular night's terror? Right. Was it supposed to be really dark in the mausoleum? Because it, you couldn't tell because... It was the most well-lit night ever. Exactly. Uh, and that... It, I, you know what? I'm, I'm going to at least give it a little, uh, a little something there because mil- films of the, the 50s and the 60s and lighting versus what you could get on a film print... Yeah, sometimes they had to fudge what sure. really looked like. Otherwise, all they would have produced is a black film. Right. No, I, I understand. So I, yes. I guess we can assume that it's very dark. And so he's sure. having to get by with just what little light is available, either from the moon outside or I'm sure there were, there must have been small candelabras or something <laughs> burning somewhere in this mausoleum. Right, but this this partic- aside from the darkness, this this particular situation is so far divorced from the terror as a kid. It just I, as an adult of thirty five, <laughs> well, going going to uh, going well, to college. Well, I suppose because his fear was that you know Grandpa was going to come get him. His dead Grandpa right. was going to climb out of the coffin and get him. So in the end, you know, when the the cat scares him and he jumps and gets up and he looks down at it and realizes that the hand has caught his coat. I mean, that now that we've talked about it, it's kind of like, oh, well, okay. I guess I can see how it's connected. All right. I guess you're making a, a, a fair connection at this point. But again, he's made it this far. <laughs> Right, right. He knows what he's doing. Yes. I get that he's nervous in the dark, but uh, even at 35, even though he's supposed to be playing like 21. Right. (laughs) um, I don't get how his heart explodes. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. Most most 20 year old college students don't uh, don't have that bad a problem with their heart, even in the 1950s. Yeah, but you know, uh, you know when you're you when you're going to the old school. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Calling back to Mystery Science Theater. <laughs> mm-hmm. But maybe they all have heart conditions because they're all geriatrics anyway. <laughs> that, yeah, exactly. I I definitely got the impression. I think there is a relatively classic or famous horror movie. I don't know the author. I don't know who was a Poe tale or anything. I just, I know I have read tales and have seen tales portrayed in other things like the Twilight Zone that were very similar to this sort of thing about somebody, um, someone reaching out from the grave and, and grabbing someone and it's scaring them, uh, and then it turns literally to death. Literally to death, and then it it turns out that it was just uh, 
you know, their coat got caught on something or uh, I, I'm sure the Twilight Zone did it once with a, an Old West theme where someone, uh, yeah, someone's buried on Boot Hill kind of thing. And he goes up and uh, it's a mean old this cowboy guy or whatever. He takes his knife and he's just buries his knife into the ground and then he goes to get up and he yeah he feels something tug and it scares him and he dies and it turns out he just stabbed his coat yeah and you know who knows maybe this is the these kind of stories at that time perhaps they're the birth of the concept of a zombie coming from a grave (laughs) so Either way, the way the whole movie plays out and the way that and the characters are also bland anyway, um, it's just kind of hard to take any of it seriously in any way. Yeah, if they could have built something up more, we spend so much time just sort of wandering around with these characters and doing the whole pledge thing and... um. Yeah, oh, we're going to the cafeteria. Want to come? Sure, let's all go to the cafeteria. Let's dance. Let's have a beauty contest. Let's have a barbecue. It's like, what the hell's going on? Why are we doing this? Yeah, it... To just get around in the end and find out he's scared of the dark. This is why, boom, he's dead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I. It just gets all phoned in at the end, and it's just kind of like... All right, so that was a movie, huh? That was a movie, yeah. And I don't know, what did you think, even though obviously they were <laughs> they were horribly miscast, but what did you yes. think about some of the actors themselves? I didn't think that their acting was all that awful, at least not all of them. We, we talked about the uh, Tiny. I think that guy actually did a great job. He reminded me of... Um, He's like a precursor to a flounder from uh, National Lampoon's uh, Animal House. Yes. He's he's like yeah. a proto-Stephen First. <laughs> yep. No, uh, absolutely. I think that that's that's kind of a that's kind of an apt <laughs> uh, <laughs> insight into what was going on there. But uh, yeah, no, I, it's not that they that they didn't portray their characters well. It's just their characters sucked. Yeah, <laughs> they, just, they just like I, after you get through it all, you're kind of like I don't care. Right. Um, the the one that the, does drive me a little crazy is uh, it's um, oh, our hero uh, Louis Moffat, his girlfriend. Aside from the fact she looks like she's borderline forty too in the uh, in the, uh, in the I, movie. I'm sure she was. Yes. Uh, but that has nothing to do do with it. it. It's again, it's less about the way the actress played, um, and more about how they wrote the character. She had a problem with him becoming a doctor. She met him in college, right. becoming a doctor. Right. You didn't get the impression these were like high school sweethearts. This is where they met. Mm-hmm. So I'm like. She, because she did. She had an entire scene where she's like, "I just wish you were an engineer or, or a policeman or whatever." She was right. the list was going through it. Not, not a doctor, and she didn't really have a reason why. <laughs> well, it's because they kept saying weird things about him, Tom. Sure, and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then, 
again, it, it, the the drama moment is apparently when you're when the autopsy comes up, you all got to get out, get out and go. Why they don't have these scheduled, I don't know. It's not like it's not like they had to wait for a guy to drop dead that very second. Well, apparently they had to wait because it had to be a John Doe or I guess it could have been someone that had actually donated their body to science, but maybe that wasn't a thing then, so that it, they had to wait for an actual John Doe so nobody would uh, could um, say, no, you can't use them. I get that, but but why did it have to be at, like, 10 o'clock on a Friday night? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, if the guy had passed and he was available, he's dead. They, they could right. have done it the next day. They would have known. Yeah, I'm not sure. They make it act. They make it sound like they had absolutely no preservation technology. Like, you could just put him in the refrigerator. <laughs> He'd be good for a day. <laughs> Yeah, no, he he'd make it he'd make it into the next day at least. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the the fact that they had to cut off their plans at the at the dance to leave immediately, but divorcing myself from that little weirdness, um, the fact that okay, you're saying that's how this had to happen. When it when it goes down, you gotta go. Okay, fine. If that's if that's the rule, that's the rule. So if we take that as the rule, all of the girls were all mad at all of them for going to do the exact thing that they were in school to do. Yes. Um, and, and, and they did. They had that conversation at one point. And, and this is the one time where you're actually kind of on Lewis's side as he's confronting his girl going... What did you think was gonna happen? If we didn't go, all... we would have flunked out <laughs> instantly. Right. Uh, so, uh, and let's face it, this is the period of time where the girls want to marry the doctor. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that that is a very 50s thing to want to do. Yeah, so. the girls are only in college to meet someone to marry in 1950s. Uh, They're not no. there to, for a career. Right, and, and, and we we are. I want it clear. We're not saying that's how it should be. No, that's I'm just saying that's it how was it was in the fifties. Yes, um, but yeah. So that's what she's there for, and he was absolutely right to kind of call her out. And she, and, and again, this is a failure in the writing. She had no reason to be mad. They had no reason to have this conversation. So I right. don't know what it accomplished. No. Nothing except pad the film out. Which was already really short. Yeah. You know. So if you're padding out an hour. Yes. <laughs> it's you're, you're grasping at straws here, folks. Yep. Like I said, about 20 minutes. That's really all this film. You need the, you need the introduction with the gravekeeper there. Maybe you need a few bits and pieces in between. You need the, and then you need like the last, I don't know, 15 minutes of the film. I think you're right here. Uh, yeah, th th this this had the potential of being a cute uh, Edgar Allan Poe short story. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it went horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah. As far as the MST, being as early, you know, second season, this is probably one of the better ones from the second seasons, from the, yes. from the early MST. This is actually a pretty enjoyable Mystery Science Theater episode. 
sans the fat shaming, uh, which they didn't quite get away from. Uh, But, um, yeah, and like I said, it has some of the longest living uh, riffs that would, you know, fans everywhere know what you're talking about when you go, Puma! Yeah. (laughs) This also was, uh, and it's just an oddity of that particular episode, and interestingly enough, I have the appropriate gumball machines for this. All right. Um, th- this is where uh, Joel gave uh, Tom Servo a hair a haircut because <laughs> instead of being the round bulbous uh, gumball machine for his head, he had slimmed him down into a narrow cylinder, and that's yep. that was his first episode in that state. Not a not a look I like. No, it wasn't great, but uh, it did encourage me that when I found the proper gumball machines, I do ha- own a Tom <laughs> Servo head in the bulb and one in the cylinder. You got the second season Servo. There you go. Yep, I do. So as far as Ring of Terror, stick with the Mystery Science Theater. Uh, don't bother watching Unrift. Uh, you're not going to get anything more from this uh, than yeah. what we've described right here. No, and I'd like to think uh, we were probably more entertaining describing it than you would have watching it. Yeah, yes. uh, Yeah, absolutely. And uh, don't look for good copies. Unfortunately, they don't exist. Uh, You know, you can find it on YouTube. There's a couple different ones. The one I think we found is probably about the best you're going to get. And I don't know about you, but mine was filled with ads. I, I did just a straight search on... YouTube found a decent copy. Yeah. Um, not so decent as uh, like in the opening when we're getting introduced to Lewis Moffat. He's sitting there with his book and there's writing in the book and clearly the film had the intention for you to read what was written. Mm-hmm. It wasn't good enough to actually read what was in the book. Gotcha. Uh, but otherwise a fairly clean copy and no ads. So. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, I just uh, struck out the, the, the lucky one that it just that seemed means like I got the motor through for an hour and just an hour. Yeah. Yeah, no mind about every uh, every 10 minutes or so the ads would come up and I'd have to skip the ads after like 5 seconds to mm. keep get, plow through. No, I got lucky on that one. But yeah, yeah there aren't the, even at what I saw was probably conceivably as good as it was going to get. Yes, and I don't think you'll ever see this one. This is not going to be a Criterion Blu-ray anytime soon. You beat me to that joke. (laughs) (laughs) So let's leave Ring of Terror behind and talk about what we're going to do on the next episode. We're going back into our made-for-TV movies. This one is sort of inspired by something that's happening with the Cincinnati Comic Expo. One of the guests, celebrity guests that they announced was actor Alan Oppenheimer. Not a name that you will recognize, but you might recognize his face and you will definitely recognize his voice. He has done a ton of voice work. But one of the things he did, which I recognized him for, is that in the second six million dollar man made for tv movie wine women and war in 1973 he portrayed dr rudy wells so when that came up when i saw that guest announcement and i remembered wasn't he a rudy wells in the first one i'm like nope not in the first but he is in the second so like 
good enough. So we're going to look at a $6 million man made for TV movie. That'll be a lot of fun. It, it is. Uh, I know I watched this years ago, but I, I have no memory of it. So <laughs> I'm sure I'll be reminded of it as I watch it. But um, other than the fact that Alan Oppenheimer was in it, that's for some reason the only thing that really struck me. If I'm remembering correctly, yes. Uh, I, I only just recently, uh, like, I've known the voice. I've never seen the man. More recently, they've had on Netflix the new Masters of the Universe, mm-hmm. um, of which he he took on the role of Moss Man in, in the new one. And I didn't realize until I saw an interview following the series, uh, the, the part one of the series, I didn't realize he's Skeletor. Yeah. Was he the original? That's, yes. Mm-hmm. He's the original Skeletor. Yes. Yeah, That's he's done awesome. A, yeah, he's done a ton of voice work. He was Skeletor. I believe he was a Transformer or two. Oh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, he's appeared in a couple of Star Trek series. Uh, he's got a couple of Star Trek credits. So, yeah, he's definitely been around for quite a while. So, yeah. So I thought it'd be fun to watch one of the, a, a film that I knew I had access, easy access to <laughs> without having to do a whole lot of digging. No, uh, that, that's awesome. I, I, I'm looking forward to this. And it's a bionic man. I mean, you know, come on. You got to love a bionic man. Dude, he was a voice in Black Star. Oh my God! I forgot about that one. Is that the one with the? Uh, was he? Was that the one with the? Uh, was he a cowboy or is that the one with the guy with the weird white sword? That's the weird white sword dra- flying around on some sort of uh, bat dog. Right. Okay. Yeah, and had the big villain with the other half of the sword or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember much more of that than I ever. <laughs> <laughs> I would have guessed. Yeah, no, so, uh, yeah, we'll have a fun time going over um, some of his voice work as we talk about uh, his uh, role in the film. Yeah, yeah, that, that should be fun. Um, and hopefully, uh, you know, by the time we, um, by the time you hear that episode, the expo will have passed. But ho- fingers crossed, maybe we can get a little bit of audio from Mr. Oppenheimer, either uh, one-on-one or during, uh, if he does a Q&A. Maybe we'll be able to grab a couple snippets or something from it. Yes, I'm certainly hoping we'll get that chance. I'm, I'm hoping he does a Q&A because I, I think he would definitely have some stories to tell because of the breadth of his work. Uh, everything from the voice works to the Star Trek works to the $6 million man works to uh, I mean, just character actor work. He's appeared in like dozens and dozens of shows and, and movies, so I, he's yeah, got to like- have tales to tell. Like he he is pop culture, and you might not even know who he is by looking at him. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he's def- definitely one of those uh, maybe unsung heroes of mm-hmm. of film and television. So yeah, that is going to do it for this episode. Tom, thanks very much. I'm sorry that your unrift MST experience was not a better one. Um, I was fully expecting this to be the case because it fully deserved to be rift. Not that mine was really all that much better. <laughs> no, no. But that's what made the, the show so much fun. And it's why we're uh, doing this now, is uh, trying to experience what those films are like. Now we get to sit in appreciation of what it was like in the writer's room. Yeah, you definitely get the impression on this one. The, uh, the MST gang was probably like... 
We're struggling here, guys. <laughs> how many how many hurt. geriatric jokes can we make? <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Turns out about an hour and a half worth of them. <laughs> Apparently so, yeah. All right, we'll, we'll be back in a couple weeks with the $6 million man, Wine, Women, and War from 1973. Uh, until then, thanks very much for listening. We will talk to you guys then. Bye, all. See ya. Come uh-huh.